Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with uh, Matt and John. We just had a conversation with Douglas Campbell, and we thought we'd take a a bit and uh, reflect on how it is that he agrees with me in nearly everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and has been able to correct you guys in your fallacies. <laughs> That's the advantage of having a, a, an authority figure like this, you know, that you can. <laughs> uh, no, actually, Matt, you were going to you were going to bring up a couple of issues we thought that you thought maybe we should touch upon a bit more explanation with, uh, and I'm not, infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism, right? You know, this is seemed to be sort of a key, almost like a key point for Campbell. And I would like someone to translate for me why it's such an important category. For him. Okay, so let's start with where we would normally hear those words. And you normally hear those words in conversations that any humane and normal person would want to escape as quickly as possible. Because you're likely talking to a Calvinist. Right. <laughs> um, I think where most of us have encountered the words infralapsarian and supralapsarian is in terms of Calvinistic theology and whether or not you happen to be speaking with a merely insufferable five-point Calvinist or an absolutely <laughs> horrid seven-point Calvinist. Uh, who fully thinks God has done evil. But Campbell doesn't mean anything like that when he's using the word, so uh, thankfully. But, you know, shorthand, infralapsarian would be after the fall. That's just like a translation of the word. Supralapsarian would be before or be, you know, above, beyond the fall. What Campbell is doing with these words, and I think this makes total sense with his taking on board a Bartian definition of the election, is to say, well, if the election is really about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has been elected in the sense to you know, suffer. In Jesus, God's judgment against sin is uttered. And in Jesus, God's word of welcome, God's yes of salvation is uttered. Is that plan A or plan B? Did God create and, you know, he knew because of foreknowledge, God knows it's not going to work out with Adam and Eve and everything is going to go wrong. But he goes ahead and creates anyway. And, uh, you know, the humans muck it up. And so then God proceeds to plan B, which is Jesus. Or, uh, in, the, in Campbell's estimation, that would be a terrible way to look at things. Or, in accordance with the great traditions of the church, and, uh, you know, humane theologians everywhere, is it actually the case that uh, Jesus is God's plan all along? And so what's happening in creation, if we might employ somebody like St. Irenaeus, is that God has created, but creation is immature and needs to grow up, and it's going to grow up into the full stature of Jesus Christ, humans specifically, as those who bear the image and likeness of God, and the two hands of God, as Irenaeus would say, Christ and the Holy Spirit are working within time, which this would be the divine missions, uh, the, the economic trinity, if you will, is working such that all of creation and humanity come to their proper end, which if we have recourse to uh, a little bit of 
foundational thought from Greek philosophy. Haha, <laughs> that's a joke. That would entail that our our final our telos is going to be the same as our principal cause, uh, which would be we end up in friendship and harmony and peace with God and fully mature, fully what human beings ought to be. So that's the picture that Douglas Campbell would like to employ. And he's using the term supralapsarian because it's his, his distinction there is there's one plan. This is God's plan for uh, creation. This is the plan before the foundations of the earth. It's before any fall. Um, and uh, this is how it's all going to work out. Yeah, one would hope that, you know, God who's infinitely wise, you know, and omniscient would never need a backup plan. Um, that's right. That's right. Um, and so, so for someone like me who has not done as much with Douglas Campbell as you guys have, is the point in all that? That's why he is putting eschatology as sort as at the forefront of what he's doing, rather than typical things like justification. Yeah, that's that's the whole project, right? So that uh, it's two orientations to talking about theology. What's God doing in the world? Um, and if you're an infralapsarian, then the focus is always going to be on. Uh, you know, sin, what is God going to do with my sin? How does God help me? That's the big issue. And you're not really looking at the big picture that Paul is. And this is Douglas Campbell's point. You know, Paul's all about what are we in Christ? We're in Christ. We have the resurrection. What does this mean? Uh, we participate in this new reality. And so that's a whole different footing to do theology from. That's good. I, um, Paul, what was your favorite part of, of the conversation with Douglas Campbell? You know, I was just reading the section on navigation, and I, I think maybe people may overlook that section. And so I did appreciate that. I think somebody that has done cross-cultural mission would appreciate that he's put a lot of thought in that. And maybe just being new from New Zealand, you know, part of the, the experience of any of the colonies, it can go very bad or, or it can, in fact, be a Christianity can be one that has had a positive impact. And what he's describing, I think, in the case of New Zealand, and there are these instances, is that the, that the understanding is such that it's embraced many of the, the better elements of Maori culture, that there is this, this positive taking up of culture. So I very much appreciated that. The ap apocalyptic understanding, I think, really captures, am I not correct in this, John, that it does already say the difference in the two notions of supra and intralapsarian. In other words, once you go with an apocalyptic understanding, at least what I understand is, well, we're talking about then, a, and it is a very Eastern understanding, that is that creation is fulfilled in the process of being fulfilled with the person and work of Christ and the mm -hmm. incarnate person and work of Christ, but eschatologically fulfilled with the coming kingdom. What's happening in Genesis is not, oh, here is a perfected humanity, a perfected heaven and earth, and man, they sure blew it, and now we're in this terrible situation. But rather that in the notion of apocalyptic understanding, no, the creation is always, its purposes continue to be worked out in Christ and, and they're being realized. So I think in a sense, once you put that into place, there, you, need, you almost have to just go through 
and readjust your whole theological catalog because nothing is going to stay the same. And of course, most obviously in regard to justification and a focus on that, especially as a kind of legal arrangement. In other words, this is, you know, this is really what David Bentley Hart is saying that, well, the, the Paul that most people know has nothing to do with the Paul of the New Testament. And I think it's precisely this doctrine. In other words, everybody's been caught up in, in notions, Augustinian, Calvinistic notions, that the, the thing is about uh, justification. And that, that misses the, the whole point that Campbell's returning us to. So that's obviously, I think, key. Yeah, my favorite part, I think, was just um, it seemed like from every question that Campbell wants to put love at the forefront uh, of his theology. I mean, even whenever we asked him, so what's your, you know, what's the goal of the book? And he's like, well, mm-hmm. it's to help my students, you know. Um, so everything from there to, um, you know, the resurrection all the way through to our conversation on universalism that we'll get to. And even his that section in navigation when it came to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are things that we have not discussed yet. And, but it seems like he really wants to put at the forefront of his Pauline, his study of Paul, Paul's theology of love. And so he, he's rightly so, I think, rejecting that sort of thing that, that I get all the time. You know, that's like, well, you know, yeah, God is love, but, you know, dot, 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 he's also something else. And as Christians, we're going, yeah. no, actually, God it can't be one thing and something else. God is love. And whatever else we say about him has to be in concert, you know, with that primary fact. So, John, what was your, what was the high point for you for the interview? Honestly, just getting to hear Campbell talk and finding out how much of a gracious individual and how well he has reflected on, you know, where he's plugging in. I liked his bit about talking about how useless biblical studies are on their own apart from theology. Obviously thought that was a high point. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought that you know him bringing to the forefront this discussion that we just had about what does it mean to have freedom and in connection to with uh, universalism was interesting and nice to see him coming out of the same place. I thought it was interesting the way he approached the con- the conversation around the question about you know spiritual versus flesh spirit versus flesh bodies saying that even he hadn't quite worked out how central that issue was until yeah. writing this book and um, I think we may have been inoculated against understanding what Paul's getting at there at first just because the last what 50 even more years have been like be careful not to be a Gnostic. And so anything that sounds, you know, yeah. spirit flesh, it's like smacks of Gnosticism, even though that's not what's going on there. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Paul, were you a little surprised there with um, him sounding, you know, I don't want to use too harsh of language or whatever, but it sounded like he was agreeing a little bit more with what um, David Hart is doing there than N.T. Wright. Did that surprise you at all? Or did you already know that? Uh, no, I restated that section. Uh, for a purpose, because, you know, what Hart thinks may be in, you know, that's wasn't really the issue. But part of the issue is then the, the way that the New Testament is using flesh. And so I restated that and the idea that he did agree with and, and affirm, and I think it's there, is that clearly flesh is containing then the idea of a sin principle. 
In other words, it's not simply, oh, we got a problem with our physical bodies. It may be that we have a problem with our physical bodies, but our physical bodies are not the problem. Our problem is what we would always do. We take something finite or we take something of, you know, that's mortal and we make it infinite or we make it immortal. So that the flesh, the principle of the flesh, can be misunderstood to be a problem with the physical body. Or, or simply that, you know, at a, at a kind of naive, unqualified level. And that's clearly, I think, not the teaching. That would be a kind of Gnostic understanding. No, I, I was not surprised uh, that he agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> I took him to to be agreeing with Matt. Him. Do you think you think Paul being? Do you think? Uh, yeah, Matt. Do you think that's accurate? Well, that's what I was. I was going to ask John because I, I John said something, and I, Campbell seemed to agree that he said, "Well, but the problem is, is that the body is corruptible, right?" Um, and Douglas Campbell seemed to agree with that. Am I wrong about that, John? No, he he said it before I did. I was oh, okay. uh, I was agreeing with him when I said oh, okay, that. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. That's not so. So in other words, like I, that's what I'm trying to figure. out. I think you're making him agree with you too much, Paul. I think he is saying what you're saying, but I think he's saying more than that too, mm-hmm. uh, because Hart's definitely saying more than that. He said he's agreeing with Hart, and he went on to say that um, it, you know, it, what we are made of it was a phrase that Campbell used. Um, Hart talks about like these spirit, flesh, all these things as being like elemental principles and Greek thought. Um, and Campbell says, well, you know, this is what we are made of. We're being transformed away from that. I don't, I mean, like, I definitely think that you're right when you call when you came back and said, Hey, you know, more clarification, he didn't disagree with what you're saying, but I do think he's still saying more than just that. Maybe, maybe we already need to go back and listen to the footage. <laughs> no, he, he. <laughs> He agrees with. No, I think that part of the issue here, we're we're trying to coordinate several things, and I may not be up to it because I'm. Um, uh, you guys may be better informed on what Hart is saying, but the little bit that I've engaged Hart on this, Hart then does say, you know, in his translation, that flesh just means physical bodies, and I think he's wrong in that. I I think that's not. Uh, the the way that the New Testament, and and there are particular passages that it's he's clearly wrong that it's clearly talking about sin and connecting it. So there there is a slight difference here, and that is that you can talk about physical bodies as being problematic, but not that they are inherently. And so when Paul talks about the seed that is planted you know, in terms of the body, is the body that is raised. And I didn't bring this up because I'm afraid so much of it is just semantics. The element here, you know, that Hart, at least in as little as I know of him, has talked about that body as if it's not a physical body. I'm not quite sure what that would mean, because I don't think we know what material and physical is we're really not saying anything when we say that. And so I'm afraid that say that I think we have to remember that St. Paul um, would have thought he would have known what he was talking about, because at that point in time, 
you had a lot of thought about angels and what it means for an angel to have a body versus what it means for a human to have a body. What does it mean for these orders of powers to have bodies? And so I, I don't think that's uh, true. I think, um, I mean, I think you may have a good point, and I'm not just going to say I think you're wrong, uh, but I think what Hart's saying is the way you have to translate this is according to what Hart, uh, what Paul would have thought these words meant. And it would have been pretty clear that St. Paul would have thought that he could say flesh means one order of bodies and spirit means one other order, of a different order of bodies. It's a, a body on a different kind of order, made of something else. And Campbell seemed to agree that... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah, so I'm just trying to clarify that. then. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, this is the whole issue of the orientation to death that I think is inherent to sin. It is an orientation that comes with, in other words, we what we would do is precisely deny and with, you know, that word is some way inadequate, but we would deny death or we would deny mortality. And that pertains then to the condition that we find ourselves in. So that, yeah, that part is there. But the resolution to that is then a simultaneous. In other words, you don't want to get the fact that it's not simply that we have a problem with our bodies we have a problem with our orientation to what it means to be physically embodied. And that is what is the sin principle identified as the flesh. Not always, but in, in many instances in the New Testament. So that it's a, a very specific thing. I don't think that Paul just sent, simply thought that, you know, he, he says that we're, our battle is not with flesh and blood. So he's going to say two things, that flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom, but our battle is not with flesh and blood. So it, that's not our problem. Yeah. That was our battle is with the fallen angels. <laughs> I think what Paul means there, though, is that our battles with fallen angels who are dominating the cosmos. Yeah, with a spiritual orientation that I think is captured in sin and the orientation to death. <laughs> Would you want to demythologize that statement a bit? That uh, I mean, Hart says it really strongly, but I think that is what Paul's talking about there. You know, what what's going on? Well, the gospel for Paul is that Jesus Christ has defeated fallen angels. Would you be happy with that? I mean, I'm not even saying that I am. I'm just curious about your response. Yeah, I liked, the, I liked what Campbell said on that point, and he brought out, you know, even mm -hmm. Paul, though, ties that, you know, who crucified Christ? Yeah. Well, he talks about the powers crucified him. And so Paul is doing what I think is, you know, I think we can legitimately do what someone like Walter Wink does, and that is that the powers are immediately identifiable for Paul. Now, it is not simply to reduce it to the political, but he could point his finger at the emperor of Rome, at Pilate, at Herod. Those are the, those are the people, yeah. or, or, you know, but that is not simply to limit it. Yeah, I imagine St. Paul probably thought, though, that um, the archons, these orders of fallen angels, are controlling political systems. Oh, he did. I mean, I think that not only that, but... I think that in the New Testament, 
you know, the way the, 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 the other gods, Artemis, you know, Hermes, whatever, all these different um, gods that they thought that demons were sort of stood behind uh, because they were accepting the worship yeah. that was, that's only due to the Holy Trinity. Yeah. I guess I'm just saying, I'm fearful. We would all be like Herr Boltmann and, uh, yeah, such critique's good, but the problem is yours. Just you know, it looks exactly like our us, our world. I, I don't. No, I like the. Uh, did you guys like these? Yeah, no, critique? I thought it was fun. Yes, no, I Matt and I, I think. Oh, you missed our brief conversation before you got on uh, because of the technical glitch, and we both kind of said, "Well, hold on a second. This is basically how Paul's reading the Old Testament if you do it in the way that Campbell was describing." You know, I, th I think Bart's criticism is probably true of Boltman. It's like, well, the problem with your sock critique is that you're doing it according to yourself. And um, the way Paul read the Old Testament was to say, well, it's not about maybe what you think it's about. The material is actually about Jesus. So I'm definitely on board for that. And um, shouldn't we, and, you know, Paul, John and I were talking about how, isn't this what we do in our reading Gospel of John? Isn't this what we do in the, with the New Testament? So it's like, okay, whenever Jesus is cooking the fish over the hot coals, over the fire that, you know, for the fathers, they had no problem with saying, well, the fire stands for the divinity of God and the fish stands for, you know, human beings and the two coming together. And what we're saying, I guess, is uh, back to our conversation about origin and other interpreters is that we should interpret the Bible not only historically, not only morally and ethically, but also spiritually. I, I think that's right. And let me do a little suck. <laughs> there is so much ambiguity in parts of Scripture. I was just listening to Sarah Coakley and her description, you know, of the various traditions flowing out of Genesis. That in a sense, you get all of the, you can almost trace every theological tradition back to what they're doing with Genesis. So it's not like Genesis just is point blank, oh, saying, well, you know, that there is this ambiguity. And so I think that this critique that we all, whether you admit it or not, we're all doing it. We're all bringing an understanding of Jesus, of who we think Christ is, into our understanding of all of Scripture and certainly of Genesis. I, I have two areas that I am, I, I'm happy to be ambiguous. One of them is if I meet somebody from Haiti or I meet somebody, various people from Africa or even Thailand and, 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 and even in Japan, there are the, the mountain mystics, that there is this strong belief in the demonic or in the spiritual realm. I'm never quite sure what to do with that. I don't want to go as far as the typical voodoo or uh, Shinto and simply acknowledge and name these spirits in the way that they've named them. In other words, I think there is a danger that if we make this realm something that we, you know, can absolutely identify with the gods, that may be a way that is done in the Old Testament. But of course, Paul's point, I think, with idolatry, we can sort of carry over. These idols are nothing. That doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual force in it. It's just that when we imagine we can name this thing and identify it and describe it, we are mistaken. I'm perfectly happy to leave that ambiguity in place when we're talking about the spiritual realm. And, and the other part of that is then how that interacts with the powers that are visible and nameable. I think that probably Adolf Hitler was subject to 
profound evil and was a spiritual evil. But I think it's almost enough you can trace this out philosophically and historically and leave in place the the understanding and not necessarily, oh, the, the devil did it. I'm not saying he didn't, but I can name this in a more concrete fashion. There may be a bit of a, a kind of critical element taking place here, and I'm I'm happy to admit that that it may be that in the first century that there was a greater willingness, as there is even today, to name the demonic and what where the demonic is at play. I'm not as comfortable to to name those things in the way that they're often identified. Well, I'm just wondering if that's... Uh, Did that satisfy you? Uh, you know, your answer is like, uh, I mean, you explained your position very well. Yeah, definitely. I'm just, I, mean, I just think it's interesting because, you know, where, if, you know, evaluating, like, where does that come from? Because we do live in a time where I think we are still more comfortable with sort of a demythologization. Uh, and I don't know if that's in the end helpful. I don't know. A lot to, a lot to chew on there, Paul. Yeah, where I'm not comfortable is, you know, Boltman is demythologizing in two directions. That he's also then, uh, I, I'm afraid, re, uh, kind of reducing to a kind of theological liberalism in which, and, and I think that we do need to re-enchant the world with the, the beauty and power of God and recognize that in him we live and move and have our being. I think that sort of re-enchantment, even mm -hmm. let's call it a re-mythologizing, as Van Hooser has written. Uh, yeah, I'm, for, I'm all for that. But I'm not for the kind of reintroduction that is so prevalent in a place like Japan of the fear of the, you know, these gods or these, it's actually more, more demonic than uh, having to do with deity. I think that in some way we do need, as Christians, to say the idol is nothing. There's nothing there. I mean, I, I want to agree with that, but I would also want to add, though, that uh, as Christians, you know, maybe we, we would want to say to those folks, well, you know, the truth is, is that there are dangerous spirits that maybe you should be afraid of. You, you probably shouldn't mess around, you know, with them or whatever. And if you go back and if you read the fathers, especially the desert fathers and people like this, I mean, they're just, they're, they're not making any bones about it. They're, they're having visions of, you know, demons and um, acutely aware of sort of being tempted. And maybe I'm just pre-modern enough or whatever. But whenever I turn on the news and I see a, a police officer in Minneapolis who's um, crushing someone's, you know, ability to breathe and just murdering them, I guess I'm open to the, to the possibility that there are evil you know, forces there or spirits there or whatever, who may in fact be inciting him to murder. Uh, and not only to him, I mean, I guess I'm just, I look at this from a, a national level, a world, you know, historical level or whatever, that there seems to be these hostile powers that are even active in my own life. You know, it, you know, where do intrusive, awful thoughts come from? I don't know. You know, maybe it's OCD, you know, but maybe it's some sort of um, evil spirit. Uh, where, where do these ridiculous thoughts come from that we all get? You know, if you've ever really tried hard, uh, which I can't claim to have done, to contemplatively pray uh, for any long period of time, it's like, well, there seems to be forces that, that come against us. And so uh, I guess I understand the the move to saying, well, but these forces always manifest themselves in 
you know, whatever, um, national forces and military oppression and torture and things like that. But I guess I'm just also open to the alternative that, again, Paul isn't a materialist. The early church weren't. And they, they were just very plain in their warnings. Uh, um, and even in the liturgy today, you know, in the in the churches, uh, you know, we pray for protection against these hostile operations of the devil and things like this. And so I'm open because uh, the fact of the matter is, is that part of St. Paul's gospel is that these forces have, in fact, been defeated. They've been dethroned in and through the, the church and the sacraments and prayer and fasting and things like this. Um, you can overcome these forces because Christ has, in fact, defeated them. Let me agree with you, but give it a different emphasis. Let's take the guy that crushed the, you know, crushed the life out of this man, had his knee on his neck. Just a little bit I, that I've looked into this. Apparently, police officers are actually, they've sent some of them. I don't know how true any of this is. This is internet stuff. But let's say that for the moment, that these people have been trained in Israel by the Israeli military. That's one of the things that have been said. And that you can find photographs of the Israeli military, that this is a way that they take down people. I read that uh, uh, one of the a black police chief who talked about it, he, in fact, that was the first thing he said. He said, well, actually, it's a failure in training that these guys are trained in a particular fashion. In other words, I think that uh, there is a danger with anything that we say, well, that, that guy's just demonic. Uh, he's of the devil. Well, no, I, I, I don't think that, that, that we should end the conversation with that. What we should do is to try to, to create a kind of genealogy of what would cause someone to act. And I'm afraid that the introduction of a kind of spirituality in the conversation of the wrong kind and the wrong kind of spirituality will tend to shut down our comprehension or understanding of the evil and the nature of the evil that we face. I think that you can just take that as illustration and apply it across the board. That people are shaped, I, you know, this is obviously with in the Nazis, you know, Adolf Eichmann. I think you could go through his life history and describe how it is that this guy became the kind of monster that he was. It wasn't simply that he had, you know, a demonic spirit or something like that. No, you can trace this out. And so I think that we do need to recognize a kind of material development, if you, if you want to put it that way. That's probably an inadequate way to put it. But that is not then to shut off or to say, yes, but that's not a replacement to also recognizing that there are forces that may, in fact, be in above and beyond that that there is a spiritual element to it, but let's not divide those realms. Right. I mean, and I would agree. I, I you know, I think it's Michael Heisner. I, I haven't done a, a ton of with him, but I think he even introduces, you know, he's working with the early chapters of Genesis and this guy's, you know, a seriously, you know, respected scholar. And he's saying that, well, you know, in his opinion that the, the you know, wicked spirits introduce things like the technology of war and things like that to mankind. Like he's making that a scholarly argument. So I guess what I'm what I'm saying there is is that yeah, that these that these forces 
that, that manifest themselves institutionally and ideologically and in all these different ways, I think can act both uh, on in my life personally and in other sort of facets of human existence, right? Whether it be institutionally or structurally with like racism and oppression and, and war and things like that. So I guess all that to say that it sounds like Douglas Campbell is taking the spiritual world of the New Testament uh, very seriously. And, and he doesn't want to say, oh, well, that's just sort of a mythical way of that's how they used to think that uh, things were. But now that we know more, you know, that's sort of silly that, you know, in Matthew 4, Jesus wasn't really, you know, he wasn't really being tempted by the devil. He was just struggling with doubt and whatever, you know, it's like, well, that's one way to do it. But I guess that's not the way I would do it. A question I, I didn't get to ask, and I wasn't sure if it was a very good question, but he certainly engages Boltmann, uh, Bauer, the, theo- the liberal theological tradition. But he seems to take the best of that. That, that in and of itself is kind of interesting, kind of a commendable uh, undertaking. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I mean, I thought his point on the Boltmann question that you asked about thought critique was interesting because he's saying, well, you know, it's not just Boltmann. <laughs> like he, he kind of had redefined the word a little bit or further clarified what he was doing there uh, so that it wasn't a purely Boltmannian technique. And I wonder, I mean, again, I just don't know enough. I don't know if that's just a product of doing biblical studies and places like Duke or, you know, what, what else are you going to be reading? You know, I'm not for sure. Yeah, There is a wealth of scholarship that there is to be had. And, and one of the places that it is, is, you know, I think that this is, there in Schweitzer, it's there in others, is there, there is this profound recognition that what Jesus is talking about is a, a kingdom. You know, just a simple notion like that, that is there in a, a kind of liberal tradition that almost gets overlooked in a more fundamentalist or conservative depiction. And so we tend that, that often what happens in a, a dismissing of a liberal scholarship that we miss though key insights that in fact are to be had there and so he he i think maybe i don't know whether it's being uh, as connected with the torrances thomas torrance of course must have been one of the great intellects of great britain and dealing with bart and of course bart maybe you're just speaking about your own context paul oh how so in the sense that like you have moved in circles and taught taught in institutions that have very visceral knee-jerk reactions to the name Rudolf Boltman uh, that you don't get everywhere. I mean, even so, for example, having studied with what would be considered theologically conservative Anglican Episcopalians, they're still reading biblical studies, and they're not they're going to be reading people like Boltman and people who interact with Boltman, uh, even though they're not taking on the program of theological liberalism. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, I, I'm just identifying something. <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah, I like that about him because uh, I've had a similar experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to ask John for um, if he could clarify a little bit because I thought that I heard Campbell saying something about when we asked him the question about uh, you know, he makes the claim that communion is the goal of the cosmos, which is like a really great phrase, right? And that God's intention for all things is that um, I guess all things would be in communion. And so we asked him about universalism, and it sounded like he said something like, "Well, I'm not sure if Paul himself was a universalist." Mm-hmm. 
but he certainly seems to have those sort of implicit arguments, you know, that are there. Mm-hmm. So help me to understand what, what he was saying there. It's like, well, uh, what, what does that mean? Because I'm trying to figure out Paul's argument and say Romans, you know, from Romans one through 11. Yeah, so, yeah. so help me to understand. What, and of course what... it would be better if I was smart enough to like have Pauline texts in front of me to like support any of this. But I think what he's saying, and I think this is probably true, right? That so, you know, I, I actually even think David Billy Hart may say something similar. That if you look at the New Testament, it's not as if it's coherently a text advocating for universalism at every mm-hmm, turn. Mm-hmm. So there are obvious texts that people will pick out and say, oh, but look at this. This means universalism's not true. I mean, he flat out just says that there are different, you know, sort of eschatological horizons. With exactly, the- exactly. Okay. So that's the comment's not any different than that. So, um, I hear Campbell saying, okay, yeah, that's that's true. Like, there's I, different ideas entertained. But what you also see is, say, St. Paul working towards the position or saying, making doctrinal assertions that make universalism or some type of universalism the case. Like, this is obviously the logical conclusion of some of Paul's statements, uh, the biggest of which is, you know, if all in Adam have died, then all in Christ will live. Um I don't know any other way of taking that. And, you know, if you look at different statements in the New Testament, it's not as if each statement is uttered as necessary as the next. Like, some are tangential. um, Some are very important. But that whole bit about the two Adams, and Adam all have died, and in Christ all shall live, that seems to be the fundamental building block of all of Paul's theology, as well as the way the early church understands the New Testament and the Old Testament and early Christian theology. This principle that Christ has assumed humanity so that humanity might become God. You know, those are very general, wide-sweeping statements. And so I think the point that Campbell was making, and interestingly enough, though, he said that even when Paul will make contrary points, um, it's they seem to be annihilationist rather than infernalist. Uh, but then he went on to say, but then he even answers some of those objections. So uh, it does seem like whether or not Paul felt assured uh, in his universalism, he was certainly preaching the gospel in such a way that that's implicit. And I think that's that's probably the case. And this is sort of Hart's point too, right? If we understand God to be who he's revealed himself to be in Christ, in conjunction with who the church has said God is, there's really no coherent way of speaking that doesn't entail some form of universalism. Yeah, I've often wondered, you know, as having that hope myself, if what Paul is saying is that, well, all in Adam, you know, if all in Adam die, which they do, right? Everyone's born in Adam, that, well, in Christ they live, that if that category mm-hmm. though is something critical there for Paul, right. That he's saying, yeah, but it's in Christ um, that you got to be in Christ, you know, to, to sort of have the fruits of that uh, recapit- recapitulation. Right. In other words, it's not just like an automatic thing that you, that you really do have to, mm-hmm. you know, however that works, baptism, Eucharist, life in the church, ethically, whatever be found in Christ for that recapitulation to sort of apply which I think we would agree with, right? It's not just like, again, it's not a cheap thing Yeah. Uh, yeah. either way, you know? So Paul has all these different metaphors about, uh, you know, boxing and wrestling and, you know, walking and all these different things that you got you to gotta figure this thing out. And so I feel like we'd be doing, being a little bit disingenuous if we didn't talk, um, at least for a minute, uh, on the difficult 
last question that we talked to him about about um, sexuality. And so I don't expect any of us to sort of come out and make some a big statement or whatever, because I think that we're all sort of working through these different things. But I do, again, I, I am very interested in anybody from George McDonald to Oregon, you know, whoever, to Douglas Campbell, that if you're going to put love at the forefront of, of your theology, and I don't mean this sort of flaky, anything goes sort of love, that's not love, right? But something with, you know, the content that someone like Campbell wants to give it to help us sort of rethink maybe at least how we approach some of these issues in the in the 21st century and to ask you know the type of questions these new questions as you were saying earlier john you know that that are applicable and by using that sort of pauline theology of love to go about answering those questions right i'm going to admit to an error and you guys can take note because this has never happened before this is very rare yeah, okay. um <laughs> <laughs> Paul's statement in uh, Galatians, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. I've always readily understood, okay, we're not going to do identity through Jew, Gentile, but we're going to be a new humanity. I have no problem understanding slave-free, that social class, economic class, ethnocentricity, you know, whatever, those do not hold. Male-female, I can explain that I've understood that, yeah, we no longer do identity on the basis of human sexuality. But there is the sense, then, that in my own understanding, that particular pair did in fact have, in other words, it does have a seriousness that Paul is going to use the metaphor or the illustration of sexuality in his depiction of Christ and the church. But of course, if you're thinking in terms of an apocalyptic understanding or a supralapsarianism or the idea of creation, we have to do the same thing with those categories that we've done with the others. There may be the sense that they're illustrative, I guess, and that was his point, you know, that you can't, you can't do with that category something different than what you've done with the ad other categories. I think there's a bit of that, you know, that Paul does take the human sexuality aspect and apply it in an eschatological way. But of course, he's also saying, yes, but these are then of that realm that is no longer definitive. And so I, as he said that, I thought I probably need to work through that. Now, I have not come to a conclusion where that ends. I'm not sure quite where that ends. But just that, that little note of that is a kind of flesh and blood realm that is not part of the kingdom of heaven. I'm still waiting to hear, though, what, uh, where, where's your error? What error did you make? Oh, not really an error. So... <laughs> Whatever you do with the other two categories, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, fits into that in the same way. So there may be a lifting up of those categories, but it's not a preservation 
of those enduring categories any more than there's a preservation of slave-free Jew-Gentile. Yeah, because once you get rid of your fleshly body, it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> uh, maybe I can ask it in a different way. Um, I guess I'm wondering, and I've always wondered this, I'm with Paul. I think that, you know, identity through difference is not how, you know, a Christian should think, you know, that, oh, I am what I am over and against what I'm not or whatever. But I've always wondered about the division between something like a saint and a sinner or someone who is uh, in Christ or someone who isn't. I guess I guess I wouldn't necessarily want to do identity in that way. I don't I don't think so. But um, isn't that part of like the point though? Right, is to become you know there's the people who are holy and then there's sort of like the dogs who are unholy or whatever. Right. So help me to understand you know uh, the tension. There. I, I think Campbell does a nice job in in his section. You know how how are we to regard people uh, that we're bringing the gospel to? Well, there are friends. Uh, that we're going to love them. There is no inside outside in the sense that we're going to be. I mean, the whole point is all will end up in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a temporal provisional difference. Uh, I was wondering, John, did you like his explanation of uh, the role of uh, the Greek philosophical understanding as not foundational? I think uh, it's probably just an equivocation of terms. I don't know enough. I actually, so I, I've thought about, this is something I'd like to learn more about from Campbell. Like, what, what do you mean? Because I don't think like historically it would be accurate to say that when they're employing terms like homoousius and homoousian at Chalcedon in particular, by that point, when they're talking about terms like will, I don't think they're doing that apart from the philosophical tradition. Now, I would definitely agree with him and say, well, obviously, they're not just giving a thumbs up like they're there's a critical approach. Right. So I don't know. I don't know if we were saying the same thing. And I, I'm open to learning. So that the category of like foundations that's in all the Lonergan stuff is basically just to say when we come to any discussion, we're going to employ um, concepts that we already have from different areas of our lives or from different, uh, you know, these concepts have meaning based on their use other places. When we employ them, we're probably, maybe there is some kind of synthetic thing happening with our knowledge, but it's not as if somehow it's cut off from that other thing, whatever it may be. So if it's like philosophical language, um, it's not as if you could all of a sudden use philosophical language mixed with, uh, you know, trying to explain what's going on with who Jesus is and imagine that we're no longer still employing philosophical principles. But I would agree with Campbell, like wholeheartedly, that we don't want the sort of project that is like a questing project. Um, it's not as if through reason or through philosophy, we're going to build ourselves up to this picture of who Jesus is. I'm not well versed enough to actually explain what exactly is going on in the way I was wanting to use the word foundations. And I did like Campbell's answer. Uh, I, I liked it as he elaborated. So does that answer your question? Yeah. No, I was just curious because I thought he did an excellent job on mm -hmm. that question and addressed it directly and then preserved in the process. Mm -hmm. his, he is using the word foundationalism. Uh, as I said to him, it could almost be equivalent to sin. I think we're all together.
That's what Paul does. Yeah. I am Pentecostal. I am in a Baptist. We're the true church. I think we're all together. And I think the conversations that we have, uh, there's nothing more Christian or a deeper fellowship than the conversations and friendships that we have. One of my favorite things about the, the liturgy is whenever the, they do it a couple of times, is like both the priests, they say to each other, Brother, forgive me the sinner. And then they turn to the congregation and say, Brothers and sisters, forgive me the sinner. And so I think we do, we do have a, a, a profound unity that nothing can break. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the five people in in my living room. We are the true. We have the true ecumenical. <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, we, yeah, we were doing, I think that a lot of it, uh, that we were, there was a lot of semantics that, so, um, and it, it is not simply, or maybe it is that, you know, there is, it is important to, John, did I lose you? Oh no. John? John? Hello. Okay. Okay. I'm going to shut this thing down. I appreciate you guys. You are the loveliest people in the world. And we've had this wonderful conversation. Um, and I so appreciate you guys, uh, the, the continued dialogue with an old man who, uh, <laughs> yes. All right, I'm going to shut this down.